Listening to Ideas on Trapped with Toby Lawson. This is Ideas on Trap podcast, and I am your host, Toby Lawson. On today's show, we will be talking about supply chains. Supply chains have been in the news a lot in recent months. Because there have been shortages of many important things like food, semiconductor microchips, heating and cooking gas, and even shipping containers. These shortages have caused the price of many commodities around the world to go through the roof. Policymakers globally are scrambling to find solutions to the problem, especially with the holiday season coming around. I try to unpack some of these issues with decision scientist Oliver Baig, who is coming to the show for the second time. We also revisit some of the themes from our last conversation around lockdowns and some of the secondary effects of some of the pandemic policies. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and many thanks to Oliver for taking his time to talk to me. Ideas on Trap is sponsored by iInvest. iInvest is Nigeria's foremost digital platform for trading financial products like treasury bills, fixed deposit notes, commercial papers, euro bonds, and many more. It is the leading financial services marketplace that gives you access to investment opportunities from various financial services providers within a single secure platform. Download the iInvest app on your Google Play Store or iOS App Store today and start investing at your convenience from anywhere in the world. Terms and conditions apply. And now, let's listen to the podcast. My guest who is making his second appearance on the show is Oliver Baig. Uh, he's a decision scientist and, uh, I mean, welcome back to the show. <laughs> Pleasure to be on the podcast. Yeah. So the last time we talked pretty much about the pandemic, mostly about some of the predictions that experts were making about the patterns of the infection and fatality and so many of the public health implications of that. But one thing we are now seeing that is quite becoming so clear is some of the other, I should say, secondary, in quote, effects of some of the measures that were taken because of the pandemic policy-wise. One metaphor you used, which I like so much, it pumps my intuitions in all the right ways, is like the lockdown is like telling half of the cars of the road to stop instantly, and the other half to just, I mean, speed right ahead you know and there's a global shortage of so many things supply chain is so much in the news now from shipping costs going up about over 400 percent food inflation is high it's crazy in nigeria india is experiencing hunger 
poverty has definitely worsened for a lot of vulnerable demography. There is also the issue of joblessness. Uh, businesses have gone under. Again, I will ask you, and this may seem like picking up from the theme of where we stopped the last time, could some of these problems we are now seeing, which we are going to delve into, could it have been prevented? Um, clearly, like most of the policy that, you know, the last uh, year and a half were not taking us into account. And so the analogy you're saying about like half of the cars on a highway, like being forced to stop and the other half being forced to speed up. Like the situation in uh, 2020 was basically a lot of people were calling for a complete shutdown of the global economy until we're done with fighting this virus. I remember like the prominent German economist, I think probably two, three weeks into the lockdown was like making fun of the German government's decision to bring in asparagus harvesters. They usually not come from Germany, they usually come from like Czech or Poland. This particular economist said like, whatever asparagus is not important enough, we cannot let people in that might bring in the virus or something like that. And of course, like very, very, very quickly, we had massive problems on both food production and of course, we had food shortages very, very quickly. So we basically had harvests dying on the field and shortages within the supply chain, in between the production and the consumption of things. We have like abattoirs and processing facilities and so on. And so we are very, very much into a severe food crisis very quickly. It was a predictable food crisis very, very quickly. And so then we had fairly massive measures taken in order to alleviate that, um, giving people money, at least in the, sort of the Western world. Yeah. And so that seemed to have stopped it. And suddenly people had got the feeling that really, uh, the economy is working again and we can still buy our car and we can still consume. And people had money to spend and use the money to buy products because there was not a lot of other things they could spend it on, like uh, movie theaters were closed. And so this is a situation that looked like very good for a while. It seemed like we had resolved this quickly emerging problem of a, a stopped economy. And of course, that's not how it works. And we've seen increasing numbers of reports of an economy that is not working anymore because of the basic things we take for granted. It's like basically shipping containers. Um, the basic things are not what they should be. Not only have severe shortages, we also have the situation that we're like piling up empty shipping containers in certain ports and they cannot be moved anywhere else because we don't have the, the shipping capacity. And this is the current situation that things are not where they should be. Things we take for granted are in short supply, which has like all kinds of effects on other things, right? So basically having a global supply chain that is locking down just in time for Christmas and then uh, next year, you know, Chinese New Year, sort of the highest capacity, highest load primes. Um, always like the situation in supply chain that it affects the most vulnerable parts of the supply chain uh, the most and this is usually the uh, worst parts right so they're the ones that don't have the alternatives if you're a rich participant in a supply chain if you are a big car maker or something like that you cannot get shipping capacities you currently moving your raw materials by airplane 
It's more expensive, far more expensive, of course, but you need the stuff to build your cars. The worst thing you can have is, like, no, the second worst thing you can have is an almost finished product, 99% finished product that sits on your parking lot, and it's still missing one part. And this one part is like three months away from being delivered. Companies that are like rich enough that they can afford it are using any means possible to get these missing pieces, right? Of course, but what we're also seeing now, you have in automotive, it's not only automotive, it's general, but like automotive, it's very much better, it's, it's missing microchips. Microchips, supply chain topic, it's the production topic. We don't have enough production capacity to fulfill demand. But of course, now that we see car manufacturers closing down plants, you used to close down for weeks, now they're closing down for months. Now you have a, a whole dependent supply chain that feeds into these plants that have nothing to do with microchips. They're doing whatever, glove compartments, uh, plastic, glass, paint, everything else. They're not being used because production facility is not producing anymore. Now they're being affected by this. And this is the situations we have right now, and this is something I've been predicting for a long time, like basically since last February, is that we're running into the situation where basically the whole thing goes out of control. And the one thing I just posted like last week, I think is Northern Europe, especially UK, is experiencing a, a gas shortage, which affects flower production. Uh, flowers are usually grown in greenhouses in Europe, in Holland and UK, apparently. So they're closing down, which opens an opportunity for Kenya, which is also a flower producer. If you have one less competitor, now you're in a situation to put your flowers on the market, of course, but they can't because they don't have the shipping containers they need to bring flowers to Europe or North America. Right? This is a situation where basically the whole thing freezes up. My head, like for the longest time, especially coming from um, sort of like the politically relevant economists saying, okay, markets tend to self-regulate, which is true for most of the time. All of this is basically driven by capitalism. And we should like see all of these problems being short term. So we should see all of this to be like temporary and then it's going back to normal eventually. Now they have to admit that it's probably not going to go away anytime soon. Basically, everything I see in global shipping assumes that these problems are with us through 2022, I'm talking 2023 already. So, yeah, this was foreseeable. And it was like a situation where people who did not want to predict this for whatever ideological reason, like basically ignored the, uh, the pointers we had all along. That's just the person. So, but... A bit of a trivia, well, maybe not so trivial question. You work on supply chains. I don't want to name names of some of the firms you work for. But like right now, who are the people calling you the most, demanding for your expertise and help understanding or solving this problem? Where I'm going with that question is, where exactly are the bottlenecks? don't currently work on the supply chain. This is something that's just basically 25 years of expertise. I think basically what the most interest comes from right now is actually um, startups. I think, of course, what I see, a lot of current procurement managers, also logistics managers, they do everything they can to handle the situation. They're not really the ones that need my expertise. They're like 25 years logistics experience. They don't really need me. But what I see and what I'm, what I'm trying to help is sort of like 
resolve the underlying information problem we have. And this is not something we can resolve within a couple of months. Basically, people who are supply chain bottleneck managers, they do whatever they can with the tools they have really to give better tools to be better prepared for these crises is all about having the information, um, shifting information across five, six tiers within a supply chain for someone who's at the end of a supply chain to see what's happening at the beginning in order to make better plans, right? Also, like if we have a surplus of shipping containers in the port of Auckland, New Zealand, while the rest of the world is in severe shortage, how can we resolve these problems? Yeah, this is definitely something that has to happen that I normally don't work on, like trying to come up with quick fixes. I'm usually working with people that sort of like try to resolve this in the long term. So there are two explanations that I've seen in the media at which I want you to help assess them. So one explanation goes like, we had the lockdown. Mm -hmm. Everybody stay at home, you walk from home, you order whatever it is you want at home. A lot of countries give stimulus in forms of money to households, though we weren't very successful with that in Nigeria. It was a massive failure and that had its own problems. But, you know, so the theory goes that demand for most items went through the roof. And that is what we are seeing feeding through the supply chain now. But another explanation goes that what we are experiencing now is the result of economies starting to open up and that is where the surge in demand is coming from and that's why companies are struggling to meet those demand you know but usually i don't see anything about the massive restriction on supply that also was policy during the pandemic because Companies that had no house delivery capacity basically shut down or went out of business. So, I mean, how do you assess some of these explanations? Perhaps there are others that we've seen in the media from the economists to the Financial Times to so many people trying to explain this. They're not mutually exclusive, the explanations. I mean, this is probably definitely a combination of all of it that's coming all at the same time. For one, both on the supply and the demand side, we had an expectation that the economy would shut down for a long time. So people stopped um, whatever ordering cars and then like two, three weeks, months on, they realized that sort of, okay, it's still going on. I can actually order my car. And of course, all the manufacturers have to cash up for this. So this is, I think, I don't know, two, three months of no production had to be um, produced in double, triple shifts afterwards. Stimulus money, the interesting thing is not so much where like the stimulus money went to, but where we see it now, which is actually popping up in venture capital. Happy for all the startups that are beneficiary of this money, but stimulus money should not go to venture capital. So something went wrong here. Money, people were able to spend, which they did. And then the third thing, we have a shift from money spent on things you can do outdoors. Entertainment is an obvious one to money being shifted on things you can do indoors, which is like stationary bicycles, bread makers or, or playstations, all of the things, basically physical goods 
that have to be shipped. And in general, we had a shift from shopping in, in stores to things being delivered by deliveries. And this has put its strain on the whole supply chain. And our supply chain is built to run at 90% capacity. As long as we're pushing this over uh, over that limit, over 100% limit, well, there will be points where it gives out. This is just you're taking a leaky old pipeline system and you're putting like whatever more than 100% of liquid you want to run through this pipeline and the pipeline will burst in certain points. And that's exactly what happens. Mm. And then it's usually sort of the most vulnerable point of the pipeline system where it bursts. Yeah. This is, this is normal, and then we're, um, we've seen we've seen that it emanates out from there. One other thing, which is a point you've also made, albeit in different words, that the pandemic also sort of exposes is the pattern of uh, economic specialization of the global economy. Because for one, I didn't know how Malaysia was important to the supply of uh, hand gloves before the pandemic and so many other things like tissue paper and so many other overlooked everyday household commodities that we found out through shortages and empty shelves, you know, how important and how the supply chain is configured. And I mean, this brings up issues around the theories of economic trade and the geopolitics of that. You know, and so many people have been, although for political reasons, talking about reconfiguration of the supply chain. Uh, Joe Biden is talking about putting money in bringing America's supply chain closer to its borders. South Korea is spending so much money. Uh, There's so much talk of developing domestic capability. We've seen that too with the supply of vaccines, you know. So are politicians or, I mean, local stakeholders just having an overreaction or can the economics of supply chain be reconfigured, basically? Um, yes, and I mean, basically we can think of the last 70 years as a, like a post-war economy, which we had until like late 80s, early 90s. If you look at, at the post-war war, we had like two very distinct periods, which was like post-war, Cold War era, where like every country had strategic reserves on things they thought they needed in terms of a future war. So like a lot of production was still in the country, even if it was not economically efficient for those reasons. And we had the end of the Cold War. And so economic efficiency overruled all kinds of strategic considerations. And we had the period of global sourcing, which matched the time, basically, I think mid 80s is sort of the time when we started having the enterprise systems that allowed us to source everything globally. We need to take from wherever it's cheapest, where, where we get the best quality for the least money. And transportation cost logistics is not a concern. I wrote a thing like two years ago, this is that we can simply ignore the rumblings of global supply in our considerations because in comparison to production costs or marketing costs, logistic costs are negligible. 
But uh, you can, we've seen very, very weird things that basically is being produced in, say, Lebanon and it's being shipped to China, where it's being manufactured and being brought back to Europe because it's just cheaper. Of course, like we're in a situation where the supply chain layer, which basically nobody paid any attention to other than the operation and logistics of people, is the thing that's causing the problem. I mean, realizing that, okay, we should probably be producing our own chips because the global chip manufacturer, microchip manufacturers are not taking our urgent calls. They're taking others' calls. So they're basically sorting their customers by considerations which are not aligned with ours. Um, I see this as a global trend. It's going to happen probably over the next 20 years. So it's largely being connected to manufacturing trends like 3D printing, but also economies of scale becoming less important. But this bringing production back home thinking is really at the root of what's happening in the United Kingdom now, because they basically decided that if they sort of disconnect themselves from the EU, they can do this by helping production back home. And that did not turn out to be correct in this case. So this is like a major trend we're seeing overall, but this is something that will unfold over the next 20 years. A bit of a side question, I'll see on that point. I remember my operations research professor telling me in school that one of the wrong assumptions economists have is thinking that price is always clear markets. So which brings me to the question that why does economics, as opposed to other important parts on this particular issue, like operations research and the like, why does economics have so much influence on policy and the nature of public discourse? Well, economics as a discipline is tasked with sort of setting the ground rules for capitalism in a way. So like usually if you get an operations research degree, you work for a company and you do like production or logistics stuff we're talking about. And if you get an economics degree, you end up in the White House or in Washington, D.C. or similar. And of course, this is always more attractive to set policy than to work in sort of the trenches of manufacturing or logistics or the other operational stuff that is clearly not as appealing. In the United States, we had very clearly the shift operations research where they were like really world leading to, to economically. I think one reason is because there is a Nobel Prize for economics and not a Nobel Prize for operations research. Like the operational stuff became less attractive, less interesting, and so sort of moved on to others. And of course, they're very important. You always want to like capture the strategic things. So something I did not like seeing. Um, I went to United States to study operations research at a time when the United States were just shedding their manufacturing base. It was like mid nineties, so it was a very clearly recognizable decline. On the other hand, you saw economics on the ascendancy, but economists really don't know very much about production or logistics, as we've seen. Um, they basically caught completely by surprise by this whole supply chain thing. So I, I remember having discussions, is this a supply shock or is this demand shock? And now it's, like, it's an in-between shock. It's the stuff that happens in between supply and demand, and it's the stuff economists don't usually pay any attention to. For me, the problem is really just very adjacent fields, right? If you're studying operations research, you automatically study economics alone. But if you're studying economics, you're not studying operations research anymore. 
how is that possible? Exactly. This is the problem of academic specialization where you're like only doing like this one little corner in the wall, right? If you don't know how things are being made and if you don't know how things are being shipped, that is a huge gap in your knowledge. I think we've gotten to where I would say the most uncomfortable part of this conversation for me, okay. which is which is something that you and I have talked about so many times, which is there are actual real life consequences or yeah. effects for some of these problems and the decisions that were made in terms of policy during the pandemic. And uh, yeah. I do not think it should be an exaggeration, even though that's where the world is currently fixated. But I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that the fatality or the welfare consequences of some of the measures taken in terms of the pandemic response, lockdowns particularly, would have more cost in human lives than the pandemic itself. I can certainly speak for Nigeria, not mm-hmm. as any kind of expert, but we see in the news every day. 2020 was a very tragic year, both in terms of poverty, hunger, insecurity, that were all exacerbated by the measures during the lockdown. And I've seen so many other stories from all around the world, India, Kenya, Congo, Brazil, of the real life consequences of lockdowns, you know, in terms of jobs, in terms of livelihoods. Now, are we ever, this is like asking you to play psychologist. I'm sorry, I'm always asking you to put on so many hats. Are we ever going to get a reckoning from some of the experts who give legitimacy to some of these policies that I would say were not well thought out or maybe were developed and panicked or like you've also copiously documented were based on wrong models, wrong assumptions. Are we ever going to get to a point where there will be a public reckoning for some of these policies? Because what I see is a lot of these same people are sort of taking a victory lap. You know, we saved the world. The curve is flattening. We have vaccines, you know, and are we ever going to discuss these other problems that we've relegated as secondary, but which may actually have more effects and even lasting consequences for people? Are we ever going to get to that point? I said, like, I think also a couple of weeks ago, as career academic economists, you had two career defining events, and that's like 2007 and it's like 2020, and quite the remarkable majority of economists got both wrong. Basically, in 2007, I just didn't see it coming. In 2020, economics had a large part in actually triggering the events we were talking about, and none of them will lose their jobs over this. None of them will lose tenure over this. Usually, the reckoning is generational. If incoming economists after 2007 came in to also understand it and sort of have knowledge that is hopefully enough to avoid another 2007, and I think emerging countries, Africa, in balance, was much more negatively affected by all kinds of hapless attempts to stop the pandemic. 
and it's also young people. Basically, young people got dropped off two years of their lives, but severely restricted for something that they had really no part in. And of course, Africa is a very young continent too. So a lot of younger Africans were robbed of opportunities. Um, yes, but this is um, reckoning is generational. Young emerging generation basically realizing that they were shortchanged in this situation. So it's gonna unfold over 20 years, yeah. So, but like an immediate, if we'll, we'll expect that, like they did in 2007, I remember Kirkman saying basically, oh, we did almost everything right in a great financial crisis. We missed out on this big event, but afterwards we did everything right. Um, we'll see same things, just as normal. I predicted that the tenure system will crumble over this below. Wait, if that happens, yeah. But it's definitely a problem if you have highly paid experts being so wrong on these uh, momentous events. They should be trained to be able to predict. For a layperson, because yeah. I think there was this metaphor by the venture investor Naval, and I don't agree with him on a lot, but I sort of agree with him on this one, where he said the pandemic created a situation where epidemiologists were running the economy and economists were doing public health, you know. And I don't know if that's exactly correct, but that creates this miasma of confusion for the public. And we know with social media and there's so much talk about misinformation, disinformation campaign right now, and people just generally have a hard time telling what's what sometimes or knowing basically sometimes what is good advice. And mm-hmm. even for some of us who would like to be a bit more active in our local political process, we also struggle to know where to demand accountability or even common sense. So, yeah. again, I'll ask you, like I did in the last podcast when we were talking about the infection models, again, yeah. regarding associated policies for public health crisis, whether it is how to run the economy, how to run the transportation system, how to tell people what to do and what not to do. How should the public approach expert advice? Are there heuristics? There was a lot of like reaching out from one's own like expert domain into others. And then of course the incumbents trying to fend them off. In my view of the problem is that we've allowed people to get prominent positions, both academically and in the public discussions, who are very good at math and not very good at their field. Like my field is highly mathematical. I would not be able to deal with it without having a fairly in-depth math knowledge, but I have to understand what's happening in the ground. This is expertise. Right. And we have people who are like very good at math and have very little understanding of how does math translate into the real world. This is something we have to stop. Right. So if I can contradict mathematical like projection models with 20 minutes of Excel work, then we have a problem because someone is living in a very, very cloistered mathematical world with very little um, interaction with the real world they should be dealing with. So you have to have people who are good at being actual epidemiologists and epidemiologists modelers. You have to understand how the economy works and not only what the academic knowledge, mathematical knowledge of economics pertains to be. 
And this was the problem, right? We, we basically handed the control over to people who have extremely little exposure to how things work. Yeah. yeah. One, one last question, Duke. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> one last question, Duke. And I may or may not put this in the podcast. It, it depends. Uh, the Delta, <laughs> <laughs> which I know you were tracking for the UK and I mean, maybe possibly for other places. It seemed for a while, it seemed like the Delta is actually the strain that many people have predicted, you know. But you were also saying that it holds pretty much with the previous pattern. But I mean, now talk of the Delta has pretty much faded in the same media. What did you learn from that brief experience tracking the data? We still continue to track the spread of the virus more closely than we did before. I mean, still like testing procedures, like the amount of testing we do, testing procedures are still going up. Um, in terms of predicting, like outbreak pattern, I was wrong at least once. This was like first time England had this up and down. I say, okay, this is over. I was not over. It's sort of like going up and down again. It's definitely not going exponential, but it's not, it didn't stop at the point of the others. Holland, Scotland, um, I got right. From memory, India was like, I think one of the first places in India is not going through the roof. Yeah, I don't really see a, a like the predicted significant difference between what we're seeing with Delta and, and what we saw before. Um, what you should expect in the course of the pandemic, if you think in terms of population heterogeneity, which is something we should always think about, is sort of like variants that emerge later are trying to capture the parts of the population that have not been affected yet. So they're basically closing the pockets. And sort of this is like basically a new vulnerable part of the population that was shielded from the variants before that's vulnerable to this particular new variant. And that goes up very quickly. It reaches this part of the population very quickly. And that's what happened with Delta. And of course, then you had the, the modelers who ignored population heterogeneity, just um, extrapolating this. And so it's going to capture the whole population extremely quickly. And this is definitely not. I mean, India was the first obvious contradiction to that theory, and of course, India was ignored. And then uh, we had UK. UK was like the first time where a government refused to take action. So you cannot retroactively attribute it to whatever kind of rating action we took. Boris uh, Johnson saying we, we're going to open anyway. And of course, like most of the exponentialist models got it horribly wrong. They're still in the media, um, still reading Guardian articles about uh, dire predictions. So that has not stopped. And I think the general population is slowly catching up with uh, this pattern. Yeah, I expect more to come. We have a world population. There is still pockets that have not been affected by it. But it's, and this is like my claim from the very beginning is the best strategy we can run is not curb all interaction. We've seen that it doesn't work in Australia and New Zealand. That's another thing I predicted, at least for Australia, that the, the virus will make a comeback in the in the southern winter, which it did. But that we reduce the social interaction to situations where we cannot have buildup of the virus. So basically go away from closed indoor events with crowded people until enough people are vaccinated. And the big supply chain task we have as of now is like this massive surplus in vaccines we're building up. 
in uh, the developed Western world. I think we come at more than 200 million uh, charges of vaccines coming into Germany with a population of 80 million. So this should not be talking about third to third shot boosters until we get the rest of the world vaccinated. And hopefully we do this on voluntary, basically voluntary vaccination. That's the other major problem we have that we try to force the, I don't know what the number is, 10% of holdouts to also get vaccinated by stupid exclusionary measures. This is not our prior concern. We, I think in Germany we're good. We're, re- we're starting to realize that we're undercounting as usual. So our much, much more urgent target is to get the vaccine to people who want to need them. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to the show on any of your favorite podcast vendors. That may be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or any of the rest. Don't forget to rate us on your platform. It helps others find the show. Or you can just listen or download on our website, www.ideasontrapped.com.